Um, if you have a Bible with you, please open it to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6. Uh, b- back in the day, you used to have greatest hits records when an artist wanted, you know, like, they don't really do those anymore. Now you have, like, the essentials, you know, on, uh, and, and so Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, if you were to make the essentials of the Bible, this is in there, okay? It's a, it's a text that a lot of people who are Christians don't even, aren't even that familiar with. But it is, it is super-duper key. We're going to read it, and then we're going to go back over it, okay? So we're going to read it right now, and then we're going to go through it in more detail. Exodus 19, 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There. Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Please pray with me. God, I pray that we could hear your word today, that these words of the covenant would take up residence in our hearts and minds, that they would dwell there always, that they would be uh, something that comes to our minds that they would be something that define us. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to be stuck with a name that you've been given? I think we're all familiar with the story of Les Miserables. I know I'm saying it wrong. Sorry, Mika. But, you know, there's, the, there's several movies, a play and a movie of the play and the musical and the movie of the musical, right? Um, and... and this is not going to be a problem. Everything's fine. It's good? All right. When in doubt. Why it's called? Sure. All right. Is this better? Okay. All right. See, that, that's easy. I told you it wasn't going to be a problem. Um, and, but, you know, as a book nerd, I'm going to tell you about something that's only in the book. All right. So if you, if you want this part of the story, you have to actually read the book. Uh, it starts out, you know, the, the main character of Les Mis is Jean Valjean. And he starts out, like when we first meet him, he has been walking and walking for hours and days after getting out of prison where he served a long sentence. And he goes to a little town, thirsty, hungry, sweating, just desperate for rest, food, and water. But before he goes to the inn, as a former convict, he has to go to the mayor's office first and report his presence. And so after he does so, he goes to the inn. And the innkeeper doesn't like the look of him, but he says, look, I'll pay in advance. Here's the money. And exhausted, he sits down in front of the fire on the couch. 
Now the innkeeper starts to suspect something because he heard a rumor that there was a former convict who had what's called the yellow passport, right? The convict passport who had come to their town. And so he inquires at the mayor's office and finds out what he had thought was true, that this was the convict. And so he walks over to the couch where Jean Valjean is sitting and says, I'm sorry, but you cannot eat here. And Jean Valjean says, what, I saw food. And he says, that's for other people. It's not for you. He said, well, well, could I have something else? He says, no, you can't. He says, but I've already paid. This is an inn. I'm staying. I'm eating. And he says, you can't do that. And he says, why not? And he leans in close to Jean Valjean. And he says, do you want me to tell you what your name is? It's Jean Valjean. Do you want me to tell you where I found it? At the mayor's office. You're a convict. So Jean Valjean has to leave the inn, and the next inn won't take him in. And even the, 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 the cheapest inn in town got word that there's a convict, and they won't let him in. He finally goes to a poor man's residence and knocks on the door and says, hey, I'll pay you if you let me sleep in your shed. And he said, I would never, I would never deny shelter to an honest man. So why didn't you go to the inn? He says, they were full. So what about the other inn? They were full too. And then he, he remembered, he heard rumor that there was a convict. And he said, you're not an honest man. You're Jean Valjean the convict. And slams the door in his face. A name had been given to him, convict. And he was forced to live that name out. There's real power in names. Many of us have had names given to us over the years, whether it was by your family or a mean girl in the fifth grade <laughs> or yourself. And a lot of those names are not meant to make you feel good, are they? Loser, loner, disappointment, failure, addict criminal, victim. Some people look at you and only see a mental health diagnosis, you know? Now there's other names that are meant to puff you up, right? Valedictorian. I know we got some of you here. <laughs> Alpha. <laughs> Winner. Regional leader in sales. You know, we get these names and we live them out. But there's real danger here. In our, in our society, there's, there's currently like an obsession with finding the right labels to put on yourself. It's, we call it building an identity. You know, whether that's, whether that's being being encouraged to take your ethnicity, your sexuality, your uh, nationality, whatever it is, your mental health diagnosis, and say, this is me, right? And you wear it like a unit badge, like this is the tribe I belong to. My Enneagram type, boom, I'm a nine. That's what I am. Is, is there a nine? There's a nine. Now, if, if you're, if, if this, now hang on, I know you Enneagram people, just listen. If, if it, 
if it's making you love people more, if it's making you understanding and appreciative of the differences between people, great. If you're taking it as a prophecy of who you are and what you must live out, I can't repent of this sin, I'm a two. <laughs> right? Like, that don't work. That's not it. Okay? But we are so shrieked at that we've got to find the right names to stick on ourselves, and we end up living those names out. And, and here's part of the problem. Almost all of those, like, like they may be true, but none of them actually define you. For instance, I am a member of the Dollar Shave Club, <laughs> right? But none of you is going to be like, hey, this is my friend Matt. He's a member of the Dollar Shave Club. <laughs> it's like not who I am. But I do get excellent razors delivered to my door for a fraction of the cost of the competition. <laughs> you know, I I in the scriptures, your name's a big deal. Like one of the commandments, don't take the name of the Lord lightly. Like there's power in names. You can look all over the Old Testament and the New Testament was hallowed be thy name, right? In the scriptures, name is much more than a designating label. It's your you. It's a stand-in for you. This is important. Now, now, the people of God in Exodus, when we first started the book of Exodus, they had been given a name. You know what it was? Slaves. Worthless. Rabble property of the Egyptians. But what we see has happened in the book of Exodus is that God entered their story and he brought them out of slavery and now God is going to redefine them. He's going to give them a new name. I don't know if you guys noticed when we started reading this, but pay attention. Like, let's just get a little nerdy with the text here. Verse 1 says, On the third new moon, all right, so we've been wandering in the wilderness, and then we get an indicator that we're in a new section. There's a time marker, right? We're three months out of Egypt. And, and it, it says, um, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And I don't know if you notice this, but in verse 2 it says the same thing. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. You know... Like when Tom Cruise starts saying everything twice, it's a heightened scene. You know, he's right on me, Goose. He's right on me. I can't get tone. I can't get tone. You ha uh, um, we live in a cynical world, a cynical, cynical world. Tom Cruise lets you know what are the important scenes. He says everything twice. Okay, the Bible does the same thing. So we're told twice they come into the wilderness of Sinai. What's the significance of the wilderness of Sinai? Well, it's where... God's presence is on Mount Sinai at this point. If you remember back in the beginning of the book of Exodus, God meets Moses on Mount Sinai, right? And he promises Moses, he says, hey, I'm going to get my, you're going to go, you're going to deliver my people out of Egypt and bring them here to Mount Sinai. They're going to meet me. And, and remember, Moses is like, what's the sign? How do I know that this is going to happen? He's like, the sign that I'm going to deliver my people and bring them to Mount Sinai is when you're standing here on Mount Sinai with the people, you'll know, right? <laughs> the sign is when it happens, just trust me, and it's happened. So this is a place of special significance. We see things 
like in, uh, in verses 1 through 6, in some of your Bibles, it drops into parallel lines when God's star God starts speaking, right? We also, see, uh, we also see repetition. Even in the Hebrew, the syllables become, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, they become, what's the word? I'm looking, I'm looking for a word. Metered. It becomes metered syllables, right? And each line is the same number of syllables. Okay, these are, these are ways that, that Hebrew scripture writers had of calling special attention to a really significant place. And God gives them a new name here. What does God call them? Um, look at verse 5 with me. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be what? Mine. He says, you'll be my treasured possession, but I want to focus on the my. God redefines them by calling them his. Like, who is God? We see in verse 4, he's their deliverer. He is also their covenant God, right? Uh, uh, this... Um, when, it, when he says in uh, verse 5, yes, uh, for, all, for all the earth, uh, my eyes are going on me. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, uh, for all the earth is mine. And then we also see that he is the only God, right? When, when he says all the earth is mine, that's what he's claiming. This would have been news to ancient hearers. Their understanding was there were many gods, a river god, a sky god, a god of this mountain, a god of that mountain, the sun god, and so forth. But he says, all the earth is mine. So what do they find out? That they are his, and who is he? He's their deliverer, he's their covenant god, and he is the only god. Who something belongs to can make it valuable. One of my favorite rooms in the world is, uh, is the uh, Royal Library in London. Anyone ever been there? It's really cool. You should go. It's, it's a room maybe the size of this room. It's not very big. It has some of the most amazing artifacts that, like, Earth possesses. The oldest Bible in the world, some of the oldest Korans and Gitas, and, you know, uh, uh, the notebook of, of Da Vinci with the Vitruvian Man, all that. It's there. And then as I was looking through all these artifacts, I saw just a plain tuning fork. Like it looked like the same tuning fork you could pick up at a, at a music store for a couple bucks. I was like, oh, I wonder why that, why that tuning fork's here. And I looked closer, and below it, it says tuning fork belonging to Johann Sebastian Bach. Right? In and of itself, it's just a tuning fork. But the fact that this belonged to Bach transforms it into something very, very valuable indeed, doesn't it? So the first way in which God gives them a new name is he calls them his. This slave people, this people who understood themselves to be of no account, just under the heel of the Egyptians, God says, you're mine. Now, you may be wondering, what does this ancient text have to do with God's people now? Well, the entire word of God is addressed to God's people always, but in, even in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're not going to go there right now, but, but Peter actually uses this exact text. He says, you guys, uh, like the, the same words from Exodus 19, 1 through 6, he applies to the church. So it's, it's a pretty straight line, right? 
when you're sitting there saying reject, failure, less than, God is saying mine, valuable. He gives us a new name. You no longer have naming rights. Neither does that, neither does that mean girl in the fifth grade. Okay? God calls you his. Now, practical terms, like just because something belongs to you doesn't mean you value it, though, right? Like, you may be the proud owner of a 2005 Dodge Neon, um, but you may not love that Dodge Neon. Some of you may, okay? Look at what God calls them next in verse 5. He says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You know, that, that word that gets translated treasured possession is really loaded. Uh, you know, this is, this is one, of the, one of the words in there I did, I've spent a lot of time digging on. It seems the best translation would be something like a royal heirloom. The idea of treasured possession is that it's something that's incredibly valuable and it's of like, hand it down to your lineage status, okay? That's what he's saying his people are. And he also specifies among all peoples. Now, take a little mental tour of the peoples back then. You've heard of some of them. The Assyrians, they were a very grand empire. The most powerful empire and the longest lasting for it still to this day. You had the Babylonians, the sort of like the, 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 the most advanced uh, technological and artistic culture in the world. You had uh, Egypt, for goodness sake. Like there were some grand, great, august peoples on planet Earth. And what does God say to this nation of slaves? Out of all these people, you're my royal heirloom. This is transformational. There's a book in my house. I, I, I should have brought it, actually. But um, if you were to look at it, it is a, a mass market paperback that just says the book on it. And what it is, uh, it's, it, it was before there was a living Bible translation. There was just the living Bible paraphrase. All right. Does anybody know what this is? Okay. A paraphrase is, is sort of like you take, the, take something and put it in in common parlance, right? So taking the Bible and like, all right. So the reason this is on my shelf is because when I was, oh, 14, 15 years old, I was curious what was in the Bible. And we had one Bible in our house. Like both my parents were atheists. And, and uh, our, uh, when we moved to California, we heard about born-agains. Um, and our born-again neighbors had given my brother a Bible, and so it happened to be in our house, right? And I literally started reading that Bible out of sheer curiosity, at, starting at Genesis. And uh, you know, it was funny. I, I knew so little about the Bible that uh, I looked at the table of contents. It was like Old Testament, New Testament. And I was like, New Testament? Well, I suppose that was written by hippies in the 70s because it's new, 
Like, I, I don't want to read, like, new stuff that people just made up. I want to read, like, the, the roots. So I was Old Testament. And I'm sitting there, like, slogging through Leviticus. Like, where is Jesus? Jesus in this book? And then somebody finally told me, no, that's New Testament. It's not new. Anyway, so after reading that particular Bible for a year is how I started following Jesus. Right? Like, that's how I met God is through that mass market paperback. If I were to go to Goodwill and were like, you guys want this? They'd be like, no. But it's worth a great deal to me. Right? It is a treasured possession for me. I'm keeping it always. That's what God is saying his people are like. What's more, that's what God says you are like. If this is hard for you to hear, because internally, you say, you know what, I've, I'm trying to prove that I matter. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at my lack of accomplishments. I'm looking at my lack of things that make people matter. And, and you know, like, yeah, I, I wear the failure label. I wear the unimportant label. I wear the invisible label. I've, those names have been hung on me mainly by myself. Like I said, you don't have naming rights for yourself. Neither does anybody else. What does God call you? He calls you his. He calls you his treasured possession, his heirloom for his kingdom. Now, something that, something that can make us give us our self-understanding. It's like, what are we for? I don't know about you guys, but when I feel like I'm not needed somewhere, I kind of feel worthless. We all kind of feel that, right? Like, you, you feel like you want to be making a contribution. You want your life to be about something. And it, it's almost like if you go and and help your friend move, which you, some of you guys helped us move, you were all super awesome. But if, if like, people are like, oh no, don't do that, don't pick that up, no, you can't do this, and there's like nothing for you to do, you're like, eh, well, I'm not super important around here, I'll be seeing you, I'm gonna go drink Cuddy Sark and flour to make myself feel better. <laughs> but God was not calling a people just to be a decoration, you know? When we look at verse 6, we see that he has a special purpose for them. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, right? So you see that end cap right there. He's like, speak to Israel. Speak this, speak to Israel. But when he calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he's giving them a job. Like, jobs are a lot, a, a huge part of our self-understanding is our job, right? Like, uh, it's like the third question you ask someone. What's your name? Um, I don't know what the second question would be. That's typically, no, maybe that's the second, what's your name, what do you do, right? Like, not even where you're from or do you have any family or whatever, what do you do for fun? Actually, in Colorado, that might be second. <laughs> but he gives them a job, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? So what did a priest do in the ancient Near East and also in when we see the, the, the system that God sets up? A priest 
had a really important job. A priest was someone who's, who went to God on behalf of the people and went to the people on behalf of God, right? There's sort of an a in-between between God and the people. They lead the people. They teach the people about God. They lead the people in praising God, right? That's, that's the role of a priest. And when he calls them a nation of priests, he's not saying there is a priest among you. It's saying all of you guys are priests, that your role on planet Earth is to show the world who God is, to pray for the world, to be God's emissaries, right? This is a really important job that applied to every man, woman, and child of God's people. Not only that, he calls them a holy nation. Now, that word holy it means set apart for special use. It's like good china, you know? It's like you pl normal plates that you use for every day, and then there's the good plates you only bust out on special occasions. He's saying, you're my emissaries and you're the good china. <laughs> you're set apart for my special use. What does he call them? He calls them his, he calls them a treasured possession, and he calls them indispensable. Like this applies to us too. You may be very disappointed in your career. You may feel that your place in the economy of the world makes you unimportant, replaceable. You may have even be, been replaced at your job. It's not how it works in God's economy. Doesn't matter what kind of family you're from. Doesn't matter what kind of job you occupy. Look, in God's kingdom, a king needs to bow and a slave needs to rise, right? Your, their value is not found in their place in the world's economy, but in the fact that God has given a purpose to his people, that we're indispensable, that whatever's going on with your, your money-making career, you are indispensable as a nation of priests. That's what the church is to be. Like that's part of the covenant is we're to show everyone around us the love and nature of God. We're to be in prayer for those around us. We're to act in that priestly role. And it's not me I'm talking about, it's you. It's us. That's an incredibly important job. God is on a mission in the world. God is redeeming the world. That's what the Bible teaches us, is the big picture thrust of the Bible, and he's using a people to do it. That you and I are actually indispensable in God's economy. Guys, this is the same God. And this covenant still applies to us, but even more so because of Jesus. We're still a nation of priests and a holy nation. God calls us his. God calls us a treasured possession. Jesus gives us a new name. What do we need to do? We need to receive the name that Jesus gives us. And you know what? Hold those other names very, very lightly, if at all. Now, the word behind, you, you, you may, may see this in, um, in verse 5. It says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
it's a little misleading. The, 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 the obey and keep, it's the same word, shema. It also means hear. Right? If you've ever heard of the shema of Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord, thank God. Some of you know it. Okay, great. The, the sense is not, hey, be perfect. That's not what this is saying. To hear his voice, to, it's to heed it. It's to not ignore it. You know, like, like if anyone's ever tried to get your kids to do housework, it's like, hey, do this, this, and this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you didn't hear a word I said. <laughs> you know? It's, it, it's not that. Mother's Day. Shout out to moms. You all know. It's not saying be perfect. It's saying to take it to heart, to receive it, to live it out. Right? So when, when God is saying, listen to my voice, heed my covenant, receive my covenant, it's saying, do you want the name that God gives you? Do you want to live out that name? You know, in, in, in the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it says this in Revelation 2. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, careful when, trans when, when interpreting Revelation. Not too many people are sure what's going on. But one thing seems clear. That being in Christ redefines us. That those labels that get stuck on us, whatever they are, whether they're meant to tear us down or puff us up or turn us against God. That none of those have a place on us. That they don't actually belong to us any more than, than Dollar Shave Club defines me. Which name are you living? What name has been placed on you? you rather live out the name that Jesus gives you, his treasured possession, indispensable. Here's the thing. Jesus pulls rank on whoever placed those labels on you, even if it's you, even if it's your parents. You don't get to, you don't get to place those labels on you, neither do you. Jesus overrules them. What does this look like when someone rejects the name that's been placed on them and lives out the name that Jesus gave them instead? Well, one of the greatest women in American history, her, her name was Isabella Bomfrey. You may have not heard that name. But uh, her name, Isabella Bomfrey, was not given to her by her parents. You see, she was enslaved. This was just before slavery ended in the North, and, and she was from New York and, and grew up enslaved. And her name was given to her by her enslaver. Now, when she was uh, 28 years old, she started to get messages from God telling her that she needed to escape. And so one day, she, she escapes. And she, she goes to live in New York City by herself and somehow makes her way. And um, she starts hearing about Jesus 
right? She gets in touch with, with, you know, some of the abolitionists, and they start telling her about Jesus. And for her, she thought Jesus was like one of the founding fathers, like Thomas Jefferson or something like that. She didn't know, like, the whole story of Jesus. And so when she heard about Jesus, she, she became a Christian. And, and God told her, uh, like, she was a person who got a lot of visions, and, and, and God told her to go and be an evangelist. So that's what she started doing. And she decided, you know what? That name, Isabella, bomb free. That, that was the name he gave me. And that doesn't seem to fit who she was now, right? Like being in Christ, it redefined her. So, so she, she looked at her favorite uh, Bible verse, uh, 1 Chronicles 29, 15. It says, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. So she took to herself the name sojourner. Okay, and then this is really funny in her autobiography, she was just, you know, going by the name Sojourner and she ran into a Quaker woman in the streets of New York and, and this woman was asking her what her name was. And she said, well, Sojourner. He said, well, she said, well, what's your last name? And she's like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And, and she was like, well, when I used to serve Mr. Bombfree, I mean, it was Bombfree. Now I serve Jesus and he's the truth. So she told the woman that her name was Sojourner Truth. And Sojourner Truth, you may have heard the name, she became one of the greatest orators, evangelists, abolitionists, women rights advocates in American history, right? She refused the name that was placed on her, and when she came to know Christ, she took a new name from Jesus instead. And that's the one she lived out. We need to be aware of what name we're living out. What names have we allowed to be placed on us? Jesus offers us a new name. He wants to call us his treasured possession and indispensable. Let's receive the new name that Jesus gives us. Please pray with me.